Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 32. I'm your host, Jack Henneman. Today's episode is a backgrounder on Queen Elizabeth I, the surprising and brilliant queen without whom the United States would, in all likelihood, be a very different place if it existed at all. I'm recording this episode on July 27th, 2021, on a rainy Adirondack afternoon in a secure, undisclosed location just outside Tupper Lake, New York. Before we jump into the history bit, a couple of housekeeping matters. We crossed 30,000 aggregate listens a couple of days back, which is spectacular. Thank you guys for playing along and tell your friends when you think of it, especially on your social media platform of choice. Also, I appeared as a podcast guest for the first time ever, for me, in the 23rd episode of Third Act with Liz Tinkham. Third Act is a very nicely done podcast about things people do after they've done their first things, such as had a career and raising a family and such. Liz recorded my interview in April and managed to edit my word salad into something approximating coherence. I talk about this podcast and my thoughts on the teaching of history, as well as my background and career, which I suppose are the first two acts. You can find Third Act with Liz Tinkham where Ever you listen to podcasts, I'll put a link in the show notes. Thank you, Liz. This episode, Queen Elizabeth I, What You Need to Know, is a bit of a cheat, as I've been realizing that Elizabeth is foundational to the American story. I've been sorting out how to fit her in. Then I read a good chunk of Alison Weir's biography, The Life of Elizabeth I, and there were several bits that were so relevant and useful that I've decided to read them verbatim with the usual commentary interwoven. Now, some of you may be thinking, dude, how isn't this a sidebar episode? A valid question indeed. To my thinking, it would be, except that it is right on the timeline. Last episode, we looked at some of the economic changes in Europe and the birth of the first English institutions bent on overseas commercial ventures. Much of that early work happened during the reign of the boy king, Edward VI, and his successor, Mary I, and her husband, Philip of Spain. We shall begin this episode not quite at the beginning. History always begins in the middle of something. But with the death of Bloody Mary in late 1558, and Elizabeth's accession to the throne. Mary Tudor left England in what her successor would describe as a sad state, reduced to the status of a minor power on the edge of a Europe riven by religious and political strife, and a prey to the ambitions of the two major international monarchies, Spain and France. England and Spain were technically allies against France, but the reestablishment by Elizabeth of the Protestant faith in England which was confidently expected by many of her subjects, could not but cause dangerous discord with King Philip, who saw himself as the leader of the European Counter-Reformation and had vowed to stamp out heresy. Backed by the papacy, the Inquisition, the Jesuits, and the wealth of Spain's territories in the New World, there was no doubt that he could prove a very formidable enemy if provoked. France was torn by civil and religious warfare, yet the French king, Henry II, had not only occupied Calais, 
but was also maintaining a threatening military presence in Scotland, whose rulers were his allies. There was no money in the English treasury because much of it had gone to finance Philip of Spain's foreign wars, and the country had been stripped of its arms and munitions. Its chief defenses and fortresses were ruinous, and had war come, it could not have defended itself. Internally, there was dissension and dissatisfaction. Many persons had lost confidence in the government, which was in debt to the tune of 266,000 pounds, an enormous sum in those days. The people of England, who numbered between three and four million, having lived through a quarter century of Reformation and Counter-Reformation, were now divided by deep religious differences. The Count de Feria, Philip's ambassador in England at the time of Queen Mary's death, claimed that two-thirds of the population was Catholic. He may have been exaggerating, but the fact remained that London, the seat of court and government, was aggressively Protestant and influential in public affairs, where London led, the rest of the country eventually followed. On the domestic front, life was not easy. England was not a wealthy country, and its people endured relatively poor living standards. The landed classes, many of them enriched by the confiscated wealth of former monasteries, were determined in the interests of profit to convert their arable land into pasture for sheep, so as to produce the wool that supported the country's chief economic asset, the woolen cloth trade. But the enclosing of the land only added to the misery of the poor, many of whom, evicted and displaced, left their decaying villages and gravitated to the towns where they joined the growing army of beggars and vagabonds that would become such a feature of Elizabethan life. Once, the religious houses would have dispensed charity to the destitute, but Henry VIII had dissolved them all in the 1530s, and many former monks and nuns were now themselves beggars. Nor did the civic authorities help. They passed laws in an attempt to ban the poor from towns and cities, but to little avail. It was a common sight to see men and women lying in the dusty streets, often dying in the dirt like dogs or beasts, without human compassion being shown to them. Certainly, wrote a Spanish observer in 1558, the state of England lay now most afflicted. And although people looked to the new Queen Elizabeth to put matters right, there were many who doubted if she could overcome the seemingly insurmountable problems she faced, or even remain queen long enough to begin tackling them. Some, both at home and abroad, were of the opinion that her title to the throne rested on very precarious foundations. Many regarded the daughter of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn as a bastard from the time of her birth, on September 7, 1533. Although ignoring such slurs on the validity of his second marriage, Henry had declared Elizabeth as his heir. When, in 1536, Anne Boleyn was found guilty of adultery and treason, her marriage to the king was dissolved and Elizabeth was declared illegitimate and excluded from the succession. Later on, having mellowed toward his younger daughter... Henry VIII named her in his will as his successor, after Edward and Mary, and had the terms of that will enshrined in an act of parliament. But his failure to declare legitimate and Elizabeth's suspected leanings towards Protestantism made her a vulnerable target for ambitious foreign princes, 
disloyal Englishman with designs on her throne. Added to this, she was a woman, and England's experience of Mary, its first female sovereign, had not been a happy one. In that patriarchal age, the consensus of opinion held that it was against the laws of God and nature for a woman to hold dominion over men, for women were seen as weak, frail, inferior creatures who succumbed to temptations and were constitutionally unfit to wield power in a male-dominated world. I just want to step aside right here and say that is definitely not my point of view, okay, for the record. A woman's role was, as St. Paul had decreed, to keep silent in church and learn in humility from her husband at home. However, respect for the royal bloodline was even more powerful than reservations about a woman exercising sovereign power. And Elizabeth was, after all, Great Harry's daughter, who had for some years now enjoyed the affection and loyalty of people who regarded her as their future liberator and the hope of Protestantism. And what England needed most now was a firm and able hand to guide her on a safe course, provide her with stable government and security, heal her divisions, set her finances on a stable level, and enhance her prestige abroad. It was a seemingly impossible task, but many of her subjects hoped that Elizabeth would be equal to it. At this point, Weir goes into a lot of detail about challenges to Elizabeth's legitimacy. Those there were, on account of her mother having been executed for treason. Suffice it to say that those questions both angered her, as might be expected, and influenced Elizabeth to be extremely careful and nuanced in her boldest moments, if one might absorb that paradox. Back to Weir. The England that Elizabeth inherited was, on the face of it, a strictly hierarchical society, with each man born to the degree God intended, and each class defined by its style of living, manners, and dress. This was the medieval ideal, of which the new queen heartily approved, yet it masked a new mobility, both social and geographical, given impetus by the burgeoning materialism and competitive spirit that was insidiously pervading all classes, and which gathered momentum as the reign progressed and opportunities for self-enrichment widened with a reviving economy. This was, in fact, no medieval society, but a nation that was to grow increasingly secular, confident, and proud of its achievements and its increasing prosperity, a prosperity that would enrich not only the nobility, but also the merchants and yeomen who were the backbone of English society. In the 1590s, a Pomeranian visitor observed that many an English yeoman kept greater state and a more opulent table than the nobles of Bohemia. Elizabeth's subjects were a hard-headed race, largely conservative in their outlook, superstitious in the extreme. They believed in witches, fairies, goblins, and ghosts, and set great store by the predictions of seers, wizards, and astrologers. Lives made difficult because of high mortality rates. Average life expectancy was around 40 years, limited medical knowledge, more severe winters than are usual today, regular epidemics of plague, and, for many, the grinding poverty of a daily existence in which starvation might be a very real prospect. 
Bred in these people, not only a stoicism and a fortitude rare today, but also a morbid preoccupation with death. Life could be short, and a wise man prepared himself to meet his maker at any time. One of the chief concerns of Elizabethan society was that the queen's peace should be maintained throughout the kingdom, and that the lives of her subjects could be lived in orderly fashion. Yet there was lawlessness and violence both in town and country areas, and it could be dangerous to walk the London streets at night. The roads were the haunt of footpads, and those who could afford to hire bodyguards when they traveled abroad. The law, in its full majesty, could be very severe on offenders, and the punishments meted out were often savage. More than 6,000 persons were executed at Tyburn alone during Elizabeth's reign, and whipping, branding, or confinement in the stocks or pillory were common, though these did not always act as a deterrent. Traveling about 16th century England was not easy at the best of times, The landed classes were supposed to pay for the upkeep of roads in their locality, but few bothered. Hence, many roads were impassable in bad weather. Most roads were just footpaths or narrow tracks. Yet the main roads, the Queen's highways, did at least have the benefit of a fine assortment of wayside inns, said by foreign visitors to be the best in Europe. Most people got about on foot or on horseback, whilst ladies of quality would travel by horse litter. It was not until later in the reign that horse-drawn carriages, unsprung and very uncomfortable, were used and then only by the very rich. London, the capital city, boasted a population of 200,000 by the end of the 16th century. It was a crowded, dirty, noisy place where plague was endemic in the summer. But under Elizabeth, it became a thriving commercial center, handling most of Europe's trade, while at the same time the city boundaries spread beyond the old medieval walls, creating suburbs from the outlying villages. London was not only a great trading center and port, but also boasted good shops, especially in Cheapside, where goldsmiths sold their wares, and the famous market in the nave of the medieval St. Paul's Cathedral. Along the Strand, on the banks of the Thames, the great nobles had their townhouses, with gardens sloping to the river. Each had a private jetty, for the narrow streets were so congested that it was quicker and easier to travel by water. South of the Thames, on the Surrey shore, were to be found brothels, and later the first theaters, amongst them Shakespeare's Globe. On the opposite bank stood the grim bulk of the Tower of London, which served as a palace, prison, armory, and fortress. During the reigns of the Tudors, it had acquired a sinister reputation as the scene of royal executions. Yet this did not prevent the Londoners from taking their children to visit the famous menagerie, which was housed there. Within the walls of London, rich merchants built themselves fine houses, controlled the craft and guild of trades, and decked themselves and their wives in fine velvets and gold chains in emulation of their betters, bear-baiting and cockfighting were their favorite entertainments. The English, being an island people and on the periphery of European life, were fiercely insular and patriotic, their new queen being no exception. The Reformation had made them even more so, and had given birth to an age in which mapmakers and geographers were recording England's physical features in detail for the first time, 
and secular historians chronicling her history for an ever-widening audience. The English language, soon to reach its apotheosis in the plays of Shakespeare, was by Englishmen accounted the equal of any other language, classical or modern. Since the introduction of printing in the 1470s, books have become popular with an increasingly literate population, whose favorite reading was the Greek and Roman classics, which were available in many editions in their original forms or in translation. Poetry, especially erotic verse, was enormously popular. Learning, once the province of the ruling classes and the clergy, was now embraced by the burgeoning middle classes, and from 1550, increasing numbers of grammar schools were founded, many under the auspices of Queen Elizabeth herself, who cared passionately about education. All of this laid the foundations for the flowering of English culture, and in particular drama, that took place in the 1580s and 90s, the age of William Shakespeare, Edmund Spencer, and Christopher Marlowe. During the first half of the 16th century, it had become fashionable for gently-born girls to be educated in the same way as their brothers. Elizabeth herself had benefited enormously from this, but after the publication of Balthasar Castiglione's The Courtier in 1561, the trend was towards proficiency in social skills rather than academic ones. Well-reared young ladies were expected to be able to read, write letters, paint, draw, make music, do fine needlework and dance, accomplishments all designed to enhance their chances in the marriage market. Nevertheless, these ladies in attendance on the queen, who was a formidable intellectual, were expected to be well-read and erudite, for the court was a center of high culture. Here I'll skip a few pages about fashion, the arts, and architecture in mid-16th century England. Not that it isn't interesting, only that its connection to the history of the Americans is less direct, at least to my sensibilities, than economics, geopolitics, and religion. Back to Weir. For all their insularity, the Elizabethans did look beyond their island to the new worlds being discovered overseas. The 16th century was England's age of exploration and adventure, of speculation in overseas expeditions. We saw some of that last week. Of Sir Walter Raleigh, who founded the first English colony in Virginia, named after the Queen. And of Sir Francis Drake, who circumnavigated the world. At home, as trade flourished, so industry expanded. Protestant refugees from the continent introduced lace-making, silk-weaving, engraving, needle and thread-making, and other skills into England. The Statute of Apprentices of 1563, by making long indentures mandatory, helped to bring stability into industry and farming. Yet commercial success had its debit side. The pursuit of wealth and the frantic race to acquire land and power meant that most people cared only for their own interests and not for the public good or the needs of those weaker than themselves. It was a greedy, avaricious age, corrupt in many ways. The court was seen as a magnet for grasping scavengers, and there were many who managed to suborn the laws by bribery. The rich lived well. The writer Philip Stubbs observed, nowadays, if the table be not covered from the one end to the other with delicate meats of sundry sorts, and to every dish a sauce appropriate to its kind, 
it is thought unworthy of the name of a dinner. People were prepared to spend liberally on expensive imported spices, which were often used to disguise the taste of meat that had gone off during winter storage. For most animals were slaughtered in the autumn and their meat salted down and barreled for use until the spring. Small beer or ale was drunk in preference to water by all ages and classes, and fine wines were imported from the continent. Drunkenness was common, so it became commonplace to serve drinks from a sideboard rather than at table, in the hope that people would not drink as much. Although Sir Walter Raleigh is widely credited with introducing tobacco into England from America, it was probably John Hawkins who first imported the weed in 1566. Hawkins, you will recall, was the central pirate featured in our sidebar episode back in May, a pirate story. By the 1590s, pipe smoking was a common if costly habit. Tobacco cost three shillings an ounce. Everybody, it seemed, was using it. Princes, courtiers, noble ladies, soldiers, and sailors. Such was the England of Elizabeth Tudor. When she came to the throne, her subjects knew relatively little about her. Nurtured in a hard school, having suffered adversity and uncertainty from her infancy, and having gone in danger of her life on at least two occasions, she had learned to keep her own counsel, hide her feelings, and live by her wits. Already she was a mistress of the arts of deception, dissimulation, prevarication, and circumvention. All admired attributes of a true Renaissance ruler— At 25 years old, she was at last in control of her destiny, and having lived in one kind of constraint or another for the whole of her existence so far, she was determined to preserve her independence and autonomy. She had learned from her sister's mistakes and resolved never to repeat them. She would identify herself with her people and work for their common interests. She would bring peace and stability to her troubled kingdom. She would nurture it. As a loving mother nurtures a child, for this, she believed, God had preserved her life. The first act of Queen Elizabeth had been to give thanks to God for her peaceful accession to the throne, and as she later told the Spanish ambassador, to ask him that he would give her grace to govern with clemency and without bloodshed. With a calamitous example of her sister before her, she had already decided that there should be no foreign interference in the government of England, not from Spain or Rome or anywhere else, and was resolved to be herself a focus for English nationalism, the most English woman in England. Observe, Lord Burley. I am married to England. I suppose it should be said at this point that the 1998 movie, Elizabeth, is pretty good, even though Hollywood decided it would be a great idea to tart up the Virgin Queen, whom Alison Weir, in any case, argues never actually slept with her master of the horse. Elizabeth had a most difficult childhood, at least for the daughter of a king. Elizabeth's father, Henry VIII, was a gigantic and dominant personality, quite the hound dog, and he'd executed her mother, which never makes things go well. To Henry's subsequent wives, at least until his last, Elizabeth was the original red-headed stepchild. In fact, when that idea popped into my head, I was absolutely certain that her experience must be the origin of that expression. Unfortunately, I'm wrong. 
We speakers of English only began using the term redheaded stepchild in the middle of the 19th century, and Americans were the first to do it. So much for certainty. Back to Weir. It was not until Henry married Catherine Parr in 1543, she being his last wife, that Elizabeth came to enjoy a semblance of family life, as the Tudors understood it, and even then she incurred her father's displeasure for an unknown offense and was banned from seeing him for a year. They were reconciled before his death in January 1547, when his nine-year-old son, Edward VI, succeeded to the throne and Elizabeth went to live under the guardianship of Catherine Parr at the latter's dower palace at Chelsea. Henry VIII may have neglected his younger daughter in many ways, but he did ensure that from the age of six, she should be educated as befitted a Renaissance prince. Catherine Parr made it her business to supervise the education of her stepchildren and engage the best tutors for Elizabeth, among them William Grindle and the celebrated Cambridge scholar Roger Ascham. Asham and his circle were not only humanists dedicated to the study of ancient Greek and Latin classics and to the education of women, but also converts to the Reformed faith, or Protestants as such people were now known. And it is almost certain that Elizabeth was fired by their ideals at an impressionable age. She had a formidable intelligence, an acute mind, and a remarkably good memory, Asham declared that he had never known a woman with a quicker apprehension or more retentive memory. Her mind, he enthused, was seemingly free from all female weakness, and she was endowed with a masculine power of application. He delighted in the fact that she could discourse intelligently on any intellectual subject. There were many learned ladies in England, but Asham was not exaggerating when he claimed that, quote, the brightest star is my illustrious Lady Elizabeth, close quote. Like most educated gentlewomen of her day, Elizabeth was encouraged to become the equal of men in learning and to outdo the vaunted paragons of Greece and Rome. The curriculum devised for her was punishing by today's standards, but she thrived on intellectual exercises and had a particular gift for languages, which she enjoyed showing off. As queen, she read and conversed fluently in Latin, French, Greek, Spanish, Italian, and Welsh. She had read the New Testament in Greek, the orations of Isocrates and the tragedies of Sophocles, among other works. Her interest in philosophy and history were enduring, and throughout her life, she would try to set aside three hours each day to read historical books. By the way, you should set aside three hours every day to listen to historical podcasts. That's my opinion anyway. Elizabeth was also skilled at many of the traditional feminine pursuits of the English gentlewoman. In youth, she was adept at needlework and is known to have embroidered book bindings. Asham testifies to the beauty of her work and the hours she spent engaged upon it. Her talent as a calligrapher is evident in the many surviving examples of her quote, sweet Roman italic hand that survive. Nothing can be more elegant than her handwriting, commented Ashen. She had inherited her parents' passion for music and could play the lute and virginals with virtuosity, as well as sing and write music. She was an excellent horsewoman, and one of her favorite forms of exercise was to go hunting. 
At other times, she enjoyed walking outdoors or shooting with a crossbow. Above all, she passionately loved dancing, although prior to her accession, she had had little opportunity to indulge in this pastime. Elizabeth was 25 years old at her accession. She was tall and very slender with a tiny waist, small bosom, and beautiful long-fingered hands, which it pleased her vanity to display to advantage in a variety of affected poses. She had a swarthy olive complexion like that of her mother, although she made a habit of whitening it with a lotion made of egg whites, powdered eggshell, poppy seeds, borax, and alum, which made her face appear white and luminous. She had inherited also Anne Boleyn's long, thin face, high cheekbones, and pointed chin. From her father, she had a red, naturally curly hair and a high, hooked nose. In 1557, a Venetian envoy had written, Her face is comely rather than handsome, but she's well-formed and has fine eyes. They were bright and piercing beneath thin, arched brows, but their color is still a matter for dispute. If she was not conventionally attractive, she certainly had a definite charm that attracted men. Not all her courtiers' flattery proceeded from sycophancy. Above all, wrote one ambassador, such an air of dignified majesty pervades all her actions that no one can fail to suppose she is a queen. Elizabeth's character was something of a mystery to most people in 1558. She had learned early on to keep her own counsel, control her emotions, and to behave circumspectly in public, thus giving the lie to any adverse rumors about her. Although she had lived most of her life away from the public gaze, she had cleverly managed to convey to her future subjects, without making any public declaration of the fact, that she identified their interests with her own, and that she would be the champion of the true religion, Protestantism. Always dignified and stately in her bearing, she could also be vain, willful, dictatorial, temperamental, and imperious. Her sense of humor sometimes had a malicious edge to it, and she was capable of making sharp, cutting remarks. Yet she could be warm and compassionate when occasion demanded, particularly toward the old and the sick, the bereaved, and those who had suffered misfortune. She had courage, both in her convictions and in the face of danger, and was not above metaphorically thumbing her nose at her enemies. Possessing an innate humanity, she was not normally cruel, unlike most rulers of her day, and many regarded her as being unusually tolerant in that age of religious dogmatism. She saw herself as a paragon of honor and honesty, who dealt with others in a straightforward manner and would stand by the word of a prince, but the reality was somewhat different. She could prevaricate, dissemble, and deceive as well as any other ruler of her time. The need constantly to economize had made her so careful with money as to appear parsimonious, and to the end of her life she would avoid spending it if she could. Caution was her watchword in all her dealings. She took no more risks than she had to. She had learned in a hard school. Now, finally, for a bit about William Cecil, who we saw last week and who would go on to become Elizabeth's most important advisor. Last week, we talked about his role in the regency of the boy King Edward VI, his political and financial support for the merchant adventurers who had institutionalized England's imperial ambition, and the translation of the utopian novel, 
Utopia, from the original Latin into English. Cecil's political agility allowed him to survive and even thrive during the short reign of Catholic Mary I, which would set him up for 40 years of service to Elizabeth I. Back to Weir now. On the afternoon of her accession day, November 17, 1558, the new queen summoned those counselors who had arrived at Hatfield to attend her to discuss her immediate plans. Dressed in the demure black and white garments so applauded by her Protestant admirers, she presided over the meeting with a self-possession and business acumen that surprised those who had felt concern at her lack of political experience. One man, however, who had known Elizabeth since her early teens and had long been one of her foremost supporters, had no doubts about her ability to rule her people. His name was William Cecil, and for the next 40 years he was to be her chief advisor and dear friend. Cecil was now 38, although I would like to point out here that in the movie he was played by 75-year-old Richard Attenborough, which was a little bit of a casting fumble in my opinion. The only son of a Northamptonshire squire who had served Henry VIII, he had, like Roger Ascham, been educated at Cambridge and similarly influenced by the humanist reformist movement which flourished there. After university, he was sent by his father to Gray's Inn to study law, and within a short time, he was offered a handsomely remunerated position in the Court of Common Pleas. His first wife was Mary, sister of Edward VI's tutor, John Check, another Cambridge humanist. But she died young, and William married secondly another blue stocking, Mildred, eldest of the four highly educated daughters of Sir Anthony Cook, Edward VI's governor. Mildred was plain and long-faced, but the marriage was happy and fruitful, and Cecil came to revel in the delights of fatherhood. According to John Clapham, who served in his household and became his biographer, if he could get his table set round with his little children, he was then in his kingdom. Although he loved simple pleasures, the family was wealthy and had residences at Stamford Inn in Lincolnshire. He began the building of the palatial Burley House in 1553 and Wimbledon in Surrey. Unlike Edward VI, Cecil prospered. He became Master of the Court of Requests, Member of Parliament for Stamford, Secretary to the Lord Protector Somerset, a member of the Privy Council, and Secretary of State. Before being knighted in 1551, he achieved this meteoric rise through sheer hard work and integrity, proving to his masters that he was discreet, learned, trustworthy, and a statesman of the highest order, Conservative in his views, he would throughout his life share Elizabeth's belief in the time-honored medieval ideals of social hierarchy. He was also a patriot and a realist who reluctantly acknowledged the need for reform, was prepared to put his country's needs before his own, and would not scruple to use ruthless and underhand methods in the national interest. It was his supreme caution that was his greatest strength and it would be the single most important influence upon the affairs of England during the years to come. Cecil was a fervent Protestant, and although he concealed his true leanings when Mary came to the throne, his career suffered a period of stagnation. He held no court office during her reign, although he retained his post at the Court of Common Pleas. 
John Clapham describes Cecil as having a well-tempered constitution of body, of stature rather comely than tall, in countenance grave but without authority. His portraits, and there are more extant of him than any other of Elizabeth's subjects, portray him as a great statesman, a man with gray eyes, a pink complexion, graying hair, and mustache. His hair was white from about 1572. A brown beard and three warts on his right cheek. As a commoner, he certainly felt at a disadvantage among the noble lords of the court, and some of them would indeed resent him in the years to come. During Edward's reign and then Mary's, Cecil had advised Elizabeth on financial matters and later used his influence and political experience to counteract the machinations of her enemies. It did not take her long to recognize his worth, nor for him to appreciate her unique qualities, and so began one of the most remarkable partnerships in English history. Before long, she was calling him her spirit. Her bestowal of nicknames on those close to her came to be recognized as a signal mark of favor. That's a little like George W. Bush nicknaming Carl Rove Turd Blossom, but somehow a lot more dignified. Well, that seems like a good place to stop right now. I am very grateful for all you listeners. This is all very motivating for me. Please share this podcast with your friends, by which I mean the many people with whom you have superficial relationships on social media. And keep those comments, questions, pats on the back, and enraged denunciations coming. The podcast email address is thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. And the website is thehistoryoftheamericans.com.